0: Hello, I am Dr Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before, to share their work, ideas and most importantly, their unfounded opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines, into the evidence behind them and most interestingly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform and don't forget to leave a review. If you have something to share or would like to come on the podcast, find me on Twitter at Richard Booker. Today I'm joined by a good friend and colleague, Dr David Sutton, who's a consultant haematologist in the deepest, darkest depths of Staffordshire, up in the historic Potteries. David is just the kind of person this podcast was made for, someone you may not have heard from before but who's extremely knowledgeable about both clinical practice and the evidence base behind it. I really enjoyed making this podcast, it's incredibly educational for me and I'm sure you'll love listening to it time and time again for all those lovely, lovely nuggets of information. So here we go. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by David Sutton, who's a consultant haematologist at University Hospitals North Midlands in Stoke-on-Trent, who I currently have the pleasure of working with on a daily basis. Um, Dave is a bit of an expert, well, a lot of an expert on anticoagulation, specifically DOACs. And we've had lots of interesting chats about the evidence and various indications. So we just want to go through various controversies uh, with DOACs. Is that all right, Dave?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for the very kind introduction, Richard.
0: Pleasure. Um, so let's just start. Clearly, some of my listeners, if there are any yet, um, may not be okay with all the terminology. So just say, tell me what DOACs are.
1: So DOACs it stands for direct oral anticoagulants. Uh, they are a formerly known as NoAX novel, um, but I would term them as modern blood thinners as opposed to, to warfarin. And vitamin K antagonists uh, developed from rat poisons in in the 30s to 1950s. Um, we've had them in clinical use now really for over five years, and based on many studies before that, um, that as as they describe, their direct acting on uh, on either thrombin or, or factor ten A, um, and they have myriad benefits over warfarin, um, which is why they are they're now first choice in all the, the modern guidelines. So there's four drugs, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. So in the UK, we've got Apixaban, Edoxaban, Dabigatran and Rivaroxaban. Um, and then the wider readers will be aware of Batrixaban, which is available in the States only in thromboprophylaxis in, in medical patients. But that's that's nowhere near the UK at the moment.
0: Yeah. The fabled Batrixaban. Why is it? Is it, is it new? Is it newer than the others?
1: Yes. Yeah. And it's right. been it's been the only one to look at. For thromboprophylaxis in medical patients so the other four got their footholds in post-op orthopaedic vt prophylaxis before they yeah. their wider license
0: are people um, using using them much for for the orthopaedic prophylaxis i've not seen it much not
1: not very commonly whatsoever no some of that i think is escas and agreements with gps um okay. orthoped orthopedic teams vary between aspirin and and low molecular heparin usually
0: okay, okay. um and uh, before we spoke i um, did a little bit of googling and found the the uk prescribing data for the doax and um, th- so so the uk spent 700 million pounds or just over last year on oral anticoagulants of which only 10 million pounds was warfarin so we're spending over 98 percent of our anticoagulant budget is now on to, now on doax which is pretty incredible really for a drugs for drugs that have been only around for five or ten years i guess warfarin's got the additional cost of the of the of the inr monitoring but doax need their mm-hmm. monitoring too don't they
1: yes i think that's one of the biggest dangers is just assuming these drugs are are safe simple and and straightforward it's when actually they're, they're very easy to get wrong and we've both seen some of the the variable prescribing in in recent months um yeah. you can have all the randomized trial data in the world for for lower bleeding risk but if you're if you're not dosing appropriately you're not monitoring dynamic variables like renal function and weight you're, you're risk overdosing and, and bleeding and equally if you would if you're worried you're you underdose, the you cause the patient harm that's been shown to to be a problem as well
0: we'll talk about dosing and levels in a bit um i guess um but I'll, just going back to the prescribing data, it is really interesting how the the, the different drugs are, are used. Um, I, I mean, you've probably got an inkling as to which drugs used the most. Yes,
1: I mean certainly a Pixaban is um, first choice for many many groups, many indications. Certainly, we 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 prefer that in our in our patients. Um, certainly for AF, um, based on our understanding of the randomised trial data. Um, particularly the the dependency on renal, uh, renal excretion or, or lack of compared to the others. Okay,
0: so is that the principal reason? Is that, or is it, is it more familiarity, or the rep brought a nicer pizza? Or...
1: <laughs>
0: I'm not accusing you. Ben. Um, <laughs> no, no, no
1: banality. No, I mean the um, there, there are several meta-analyses which, obviously, with all their recognised drawbacks, mm. that, that send a, a consistent message that a pixpan certainly seems to have the lowest bleeding risk profile. Of them all, obviously recognizing that you, they've never been compared head to head; they've only ever been compared against mm-hmm. against warfarin. Um, but in those randomised trials, apixaban was the only one with with a similar risk of GI bleeding, whereas the other three, at their standard dose, had a had a higher risk of GI bleeding. Okay. Um, and many of our our elderly patients have other risk factors for GI bleeding, so we tend to to lean away from that, expose them to that risk in the first place. Yeah, okay.
0: Have you got any inkling as to why?
1: So it's. I mean, with dabigatran, obviously that's a pro drug with a with a coating of, of tartaric acids. So that's obviously directly irritant to the the, the gastrointestinal lining, uh, okay. um, akin to a glass of wine with each drug with each dose. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so that, that's the one that might be that might cause direct mucosal injury, leading to bleeding. The others aren't shown to do that. Um, whether it's because with rivaroxaban and doxpan, you've got a very high high peak effect because they're once daily so you get a you get a very high maximum concentration whereas with the bd drugs you don't tend to have such high high peaks and drug like their high peaks and troughs um whether it's just the nuances of the trials they're just heterogeneous trials and whether it's just like different patient groups
0: i think it's the difficulty is they've not been compared to head to mm. head, 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 isn't it um I, get, I guess i do feel sorry for the they
1: the forgotten drug yes yeah. i mean it was the the first it certainly was the novel the first doac. Uh, in common use um, I mean it has it was the first one to have a, a direct reversal agent which was a big concern for many of us with DOACs, um several years ago um, but the the drawbacks really are that it's more dependent on renal function it's got a higher creatinine clearance cut off it, it melts like a crayon in the sunshine if you don't store it properly so it's, it's not something that can go into blister packs for elderly patients it has to be kept in its in its foil um, it's been described as a horse tablet by some so it's a very big tablet difficult okay. to swallow <laughs> okay and, and then because of that effect about about a sixth the patients will be intolerant from because of gastritis
0: as well and then adoxaban's the newer drug are there any patients where you mm. would sort of prefer adoxaban first line
1: so it's something we look at in the af population certainly the the younger patients without any significant gi bleeding risk factors or equally elderly patients whose family come to give their tablets once a day um, and that's where Edoxaban fits in. Um, you could argue that for Rivaroxaban, but Rivaroxaban must be taken with food, so if your elderly patients, tea and toast is in, if diet is variable, that's where Edoxaban has that. And then looking at, at DVT, it's the only DOAC that's been studied with a with a dose reduction for weight and, and severe renal impairment. Um, so for your if you're a Pixaban, river oxaban, um, you you give full dose, and it might say use with caution if they've they've got renal impairment. Whereas with the doxaban, we have a bit more confidence in a yeah. in a fifty percent dose reduction still being as effective as as warfarin. I
0: have to say, I always worry when there's a little old lady who's got a DVT, and um, she needs to have ten milligrams bd apixaban for the seven, first seven days and then on to five and there's no dose reduction it it really does worry me and yeah those are the times where i've thought is the doxaban the doxaban 30 might be a better option mm.
1: yes i mean that's controlled trial data as well on that one yeah. um and it's i mean the other danger with the other doax is people dose on the af algorithm rather than the d v t a algorithm yeah and they get a dose reduction early on and compromising their their, their protection
0: yeah i think I think that is a real problem i think th- there's so many na- new do- um, doses and indications for the drugs, so people are getting very confused aren't they i mean this patient's coming mm. into hospital on river oxfam 2.5 bd with aspirin and being prescribed 20 <laughs> milligrams bd and all sorts of funny funny shenanigans going on isn't there
1: yes it's the the paradox of choice as it were mostly. and it's it's they're not interchangeable as as your low molecular as your lame heparins are um yeah and you've got different, different dose adjustments for different indications. So it's yeah, not something to memorise, it's something to, to look up and be careful with your indication.
0: So for anyone that's really confused about which DOAC to choose in which situation, um, for AF, there's a really good online tool that you showed me um, called Spark yeah. Tool. Just tell me a bit more about that.
1: Um, so that's a, a very helpful tool for the patient who wants to know a bit more about the, the risks and benefits. It gives a, a very clear visual visual guide. So you, you log on the website, you plug in their, their Chads 2 VASC and their, their HasBled, which is obviously a little bit outdated now that NICE, say, or recommend using Orbit scores. But then with, with the Chads 2 VASC and the HasBled scores, it, it provides the risk of uh, bleeding and thrombosis um, for no treatment, warfarin, the doax, even aspirin itself. Okay. Um, and it's very useful for patients who were saying, can I just stay on my aspirin, which obviously has no role in naf or um yeah. are, are, is my risk of bleeding a lot higher okay so think that's a good visual
0: representation yeah it's, it's good That's spark with a c so s-p-a-r-c tool.com isn't it yeah yes that's right yeah um you mentioned orbit just just glance over orbit so
1: that's a that's just a more modern uh bleeding risk tool um recommended by nice over over the Hasbled, which has been used for many years and perhaps was was or certainly was validated in, in the warfarin era um, i think the, the danger of bleeding risk tools is they're used as a reason not to protect someone from a catastrophic stroke uh, which yeah. is o- often is more harmful and more more debilitating or fatal than, than bleeding yeah. um, i look at the risk scores as ways to identify modifiable risks um, yeah. rather than a reason not to anticoagulate
0: I think one of the clinical scenarios I come across a lot is, is people that who are, who they ring up for advice on someone who's actually bled and tell me the has bled score, and I think well what what's the point this person has actually bled and the, so I think that makes the has bled score fairly irrelevant, doesn't it
1: yes, I mean it's a useful research tool it's a useful way of quantifying groups of patients um but it, at the individual level then you've got you've got much more much more mm. individual decisions to make. Why do they bleed? Was the course identifiable, reversible? So
0: what are, um, the component, what are the components of orbit? I'm putting you on the spot,
1: I'm sorry. So, so um, it's so you haven't got it all committed to memory. I, I'll go on the internet <laughs> calculator and look it up. But it, it looks at other variables. So look at your baseline haemoglobin. Right, um, and okay. It looks at patient age. Um, patients who are anemic, um, or were anemic in the studies, were more likely to bleed in the first place, uh, whether that's a marker of, of existing iron deficiency or low-grade bleeding. Okay. Okay, as
0: well. I've, I've got it. It's sex, age over 74, bleeding history, which is good. GFR, mm-hmm. less than 60, and treatment with antiplatelets. Um, yeah, it looks mm. like it's good. Is that, is that prospectively validated then as well, is it?
1: I think it has been, been yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it's based on registry data.
0: Okay, okay. Oh, nice one. Okay, always good to have another tool in the armoury, isn't it? Um, and then one thing we just missed was uh, DocSpan, you told me before we came on, about that having no lactose in it, which is always helpful.
1: Yes, I mean, diarrhea is a, is a recognised side effect with all the DOACs. Mm-hmm. Um, but if your patient's lactose intolerant, um, then perhaps the Doxpan would be the one to try first of all or, or to switch to.
0: Okay, perfect. I think that was a nice little summary of, um, of, of DOACs and, and, and why we might choose one over the other. Um, I think it's always good to have sort of tertiary DOAC clinics that you run. Um, for the difficult challenging patients especially people at high risk of bleeding or who have actually bled Um, I think that's where that role of that hemostasis thrombosis consultant is really important isn't it picking up patients who are either inappropriately anticoagulated or inappropriately not anticoagulated
1: yes uh, yeah it needs a dedicated team I mean medicine is increasingly complex and anticoagulation Mm. even more so with these choices and um, yes there are some straightforward patients um, but getting it right at the start and then following appropriately is really important for such dangerous drugs
0: yeah um the elephant in the room here for listeners is uh reversal but david and i are going to do a different podcast on reversal because it's one of my interests so i know we mentioned but we'll talk about and and pcc and and all the nuances therein later um if that's all right with everybody Okay, cool. So I think that was a, a good little start to this, uh, to this episode. So I think for the last or well, the second half, David, I'd like to go through some sort of clinical scenarios and maybe grill you about how DOACs might be used or how might they not be used and whether we should be doing levels and monitoring, et cetera. Is that okay? Of course, yeah. Um, so the thing that always intrigued me was when I did diet clinics with you, there's a big drive now to get all our patients off warfarin onto DOACs and um and and go from there really um my 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 main question in those clinics is what what do you do with someone who's got a very good time therapeutic range maybe it's a little old lady she's 85 Her time therapeutic range is a, is is uh, 95% she's been on warfarin for 15 years and she's very happy um what do you do in that situation do do, do you give her a choice do you recommend she carries on with warfarin or do you just sort of plow on and tell her she has to have the picksaban
1: um that's I mean that's a difficult situation because the the trial data, most the the warfarin arms, the time and range was between sixty and seventy percent. So I mean patient with such good time and range is rare. Um most anticoag clinics will have fewer than a quarter of patients with with very good time and range just because the nature of warfarin. Mm-hmm. Um the there are some subgroups and small cohorts showing that we'll, even with good time and range, DOACs retain that non-inferiority and, and lower risk of bleeding. Um, so I would still, with confidence, offer that lady a doac as as preference. I wouldn't obviously force her to change if she's going three monthly for INR checks.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, an eighty five year old's going to be going three monthly for renal function checks anyway, realistically. Yeah. Um, but if she can have a cranberry juice and a sprouts and arguably half intracranial risk of bleeding, then
0: then a doac would still be favourable. Do you think that's true? That half intracranial risk of bleeding, if if she's got such a good TTR.
1: It's. I mean, well, I don't think we know. I think that's the. I mean, the, scientifically, you could you could look into tissue factor expression and factor seven blockage with warfarin in the brain being more mm-hmm. important and a DOAC not, not impacting on that. Um, you could look at the fact that a lot of bleeds are actually when the INR is in range anyway. So it's more than just the high INRs that cause bleeding. Okay. Um, so many, many patients come in with a normal INR, but still have a massive subarachnoid hemorrhage.
0: Okay. And of course, I think there are some advantages to DOACs with thromboinflammation and, and Affecting the endothelial barriers and blood brain barriers as well, which might which might make sense. So that that lady, would mm-hmm. you still recommend? I mean, I'm not going to hold you to it. Would you still sort of advise that she switches over?
1: Yes, yeah, I think even more so now. now I mean, the guidance recommend OACs for all. They they don't make cut offs at 65% time in range. Okay. As well, that that was often used. I think in terms of funding decisions in the past and limiting
0: or being cautious with new drugs. Okay. 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 Good. Um, all right, next one. Um, we've got a. Uh, in fact, I had this phone call today. A twenty, I think she's ninety year old lady who's twenty seven kilos, um, and she's coming short, short of breath, and found to have a bilateral segmental PE. What do you think? Doak, not DOAC <laughs>
1: So, I mean, that's a huge, a huge warning sign there. I mean, the the hot topic is obese patients, but it's the low body weight patients we need to be more worried about. They certainly seem to have more, more bleeding, um, for a variety of reasons. And, and low body weight is generally a marker of frailty, um, which is also a risk factor for bleeding. There's, there's very little data on low body weight patients. And I generally lean towards dalteparin in this situation, followed by, by warfarin. Um, there's pediatric doses for rivaroxaban, but is a is a 90-year-old liver um, and renal function the same as a as a 12-year-old? Is probably not. So,
0: mm, okay. If you had to choose a DOAC, say she's really difficult to bleed, and uh, no one wants to give a warfarin, what'd you do? Give a dalteparin? Make her be you're gonna you're gonna be really cruel, aren't you? You're gonna make her you're gonna be stabbed every day?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I, yeah, I think I think a patient would direct us on that and probably probably refuse outright in yeah. in time. Yeah. I mean, your you've got the lower body weight dose adjustment um river oxman you've got this pediatric doses but you're really extrapolating as well um we could talk about levels but i don't Mm. think we really we'd we'd be we'd be guided by levels in such extreme situations anyway so it's a it's a difficult
0: situation do you do levels on people with low body weight maybe someone who's 45 kilos for example
1: not not routinely um because i mean just a bit like with anti levels the the clinical correlation is is still not there um the the levels are proposed with very wide wide ranges trough trough and peak levels sometimes with some overlap at at both ends um so it it certainly it would seem intuitive to do so and would often make doctors feel better and sometimes patients as well that we've measured it but what are we actually measuring and what's the actual clinical correlation
0: okay so our little old lady's getting warfarin then isn't she all right good good (laughs) it's always hard to be it's always hard to be cut and dry isn't it and there's always that conversation to be out with the patient and the relative and the risks and the benefits and 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 whatnot and i suppose that's why we get paid to do what we do yeah
1: they're never going to be in the clinical trials are they so
0: it's always going to be a extrapolation no and it makes it interesting for us doesn't it um Mm. all right so we touched on low body weight again high body weight is is the is the controversial area and there's some new is it ISTH guidelines on on this um so the yes. license for most of the doaks as i understand is up to 125 kilos
1: so the 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 spc the summary product characteristics makes no mention of an upper body weight limits. okay whatsoever it was the isth three or four years ago that that recommended a a, a cap of 120 kilos um or a BMI greater than 40 okay, on really consensus view rather than any, any strong evidence, perhaps some pharmac- pharmacodynamic and kinetic okay. data.
0: So what's led them to change that now?
1: So it's increasing real-world evidence um, looking at the, the obese or super obese cohorts. Um, previously, you had heterogeneous clinical trials with poorly defined... Body weight bands, perhaps just 120 and above, whereas now you've got 120, 150 diff- different groups, mm-hmm. um, and a lack of any strong signal that there's any loss of of safety or effectiveness. Okay,
0: it, what's your upper limit then in terms of body weight?
1: I wouldn't say a definite one. I, I'd mm-hmm. certainly, when you're getting above 150 kilos, start to start to be cautious, particularly if it's a very a very large PE, saddle PE, just been thrombolyzed, yeah. and you're switching from IV heparin to to DOAC okay um but equally what dose of dalsparin do we use for the very obese do we cap at eighteen thousand units when they're when they double the upper limit is that or do we give a 200 units per kilo all the way up as well that's a bit uncertain
0: yeah this is the key thing isn't it um is is that that clinical judgment about you know what's the indication for the anticoagulation so yeah as you rightly said big saddle PE you want to make sure that that patient's got therapeutic drug levels straight away and maybe for their mm. secondary prevention in clinic you can then bring them back and say look we can put you on a DOAC and then at that point I mean I'm you can tell I'm kind of keen on doing some levels on someone um at that mm-hmm. point would you maybe sort of switch someone over and say okay well, we'll just do your levels just to make sure or or would you just switch them over and, and, and not worry
1: so that's, I mean, the, the ISTH SSC guidance from last month has actually recommended against doing levels in that situation as well, which okay. is very clear because it was done previously. And there are, I mean, there are studies from, from um, I think it's Kings in London with River Oxman and showing that the the levels are where you'd expect them to be regardless of body weight. Okay. Um, but it's that lack of correlation that can give false reassurance or false, false, uh, false assurance. Yeah.
0: Sure so if you've got someone who's 145 kilos do you do you prefer any doac over over another
1: um so i mean there's there's more real world data for a pixaban river oxaban perhaps more so for river oxaban okay and the wording of the modern guidance is that it's only river oxaban or pixaban um to consider alongside warfarin above 120 kilos and there's a little caveat that there's more evidence for river oxaban than a pixaban
0: fine okay well that that makes sense that makes sense okay um uh, again i'm i'm going to try and pin you down to to a levels okay. discussion it, it, where which patients would you do levels in if at all
1: um so academically I'd, I'd like to be able to see levels um in anyone who comes in with a a bleed or thrombosis okay so it wouldn't affect my management at the time but obviously when we're reviewing them in clinic later on um so if they have a breakthrough thrombosis was it was it really on a therapeutic level and do we really need to, to condemn them to 3.5 INR target warfarin long term? Um, the I mean the there's some guidance from in that same ISTH guideline about patients who've had bariatric surgery. Obviously, all, all your doacs are absorbed mainly in the stomach and proximal, small bowel. Um so you, if you bypass those areas, you really are going to compromise your, your doac absorption. Yeah. Um, and they rec- they make a much stronger recommendation for trough levels there
0: remembering that article from um I about bariatric surgery is it a pixaban that's the one that you shouldn't use in people with no stomach
1: so no that they're, they're all absorbed in the stomach to an extent yeah. and then variable degrees in the in the proximal small right. intestine and then a pixaban is potentially absorbed in the distal colon as as well right okay
0: okay maybe yeah. ah maybe that's why i'm thinking yeah no i think i've got it wrong so it's people who have had a colectomy you'd avoid a pixaban But the others are okay i think that's right
1: you yeah you, if you had an alternative and that's one of the nuances of doax yes if you had an alternative agent where well, you're less concerned about the absorption
0: yeah see this is the complexity this is why you need a doax specialist isn't
1: mm. it <laughs> well one i mean one of the things with levels is the there's no dose adjustment with the doax either really is there you're not going to it's not like an iron measurement where you adjust your adjust your doax dose that's not that yeah. might be an ongoing studies but it's an proven way forward it's either a right i'm not going to use a doac or i am that's yeah. a big decision on an unproven unproven level
0: i know some people do that though don't they i've seen pe- people on 10, 10 milligrams bd a lifelong
1: not yes, at yeah. stake
0: i might add mm, no I, yeah I'm not, I'm
1: not aware of anyone locally yeah. um but yes i mean it in it may be in the future it may gain traction there may be evidence there may be yeah. studies against warfarin 3.5 it's yeah. but discuss it with the patient because it's completely off license as yeah. there's i mean arguably a definite risk of bleeding but is, is the benefit there as well
0: yeah i completely agree i i you know i like to see randomized data on these sorts of things because you are con, you are consigning someone to a to what is essentially a high risk high risk drug aren't you um mm. okay um all right so uh we've covered high body weight um we've covered levels rare sites so rare site thrombosis are quite interesting um, clearly the pathophysiology mm-hmm. of them is often different to DVT um the two i'd maybe talk about would be cerebral venous sinus and splanchnic vein so splanchnic mm-hmm. vein just explain to the uninitiated what splanchnic vein or veins are
1: so it's your main abdominal vein so you're obviously your portal vein um with then extension to the the splenic vein or the superior mesenteric vein um uh, it's the superior mesenteric vein ones that then lead to intestinal ischemia, small bowel resections. Um, in the long term, your, your portal vein thrombosis can complicate your liver transplant in the future, okay. as well because you need a portal vein for the for the transplanted liver, generally.
0: Okay, and these tend to happen with with what risk factors, or do they just spontaneous? Or...
1: So there's yeah there's there's an idiopathic group and there's a there's a, a clear uh, clear major provocation so abdominal surgery, infection, inflammation um patients with with cirrhosis are more more at risk okay. of thrombosis dvt okay. spanchnick as well
0: and you're going to use doac's in these patients is that right so i i i would
1: always think is there a reason why why I couldn't use a doac in this in this uh-huh. situation um the, the, certainly the cirrhotics are a different group because obviously their their cirrhosis might preclude safe doac use anyway okay um, but you've got the benefits of first pass metabolism you've got an active drug going mm-hmm. through the portal vein as well some people would argue it's a deep vein anyway but i think that's yeah. stretching it a little
0: bit <laughs> <laughs> i've heard that argument but they're off if, yeah. if you call them a deep vein they're on license but if they're it, it, it's sketchy isn't it whether they're actually licensed for this indication
1: hmm. But i mean it's we've always used warfarin because that's the only thing we've ever, ever had um and that doesn't necessarily mean it's immediately better and superior and you've got to discuss with the patient yeah um Absolutely. and go through it with them okay
0: Hematologists get very excited about splanknic vein thrombosis because of MPNs, don't they? Um mm. there's some reflex things you can test for in anyone with sort of idiopathic splanchnic vein thrombosis, in there, and that these are in guidelines. I often get often get calls about mm. them. Um looking for occult MPN. Should we just glance over that?
1: Absolutely, yeah, so absolutely. So and th- obviously this includes Chiari as well, so hepatic vein thrombosis, so other yeah. side of the liver to the, to the portal vein, but you should always um look for the jack t mutation even in the presence of a normal hematocrit normal normal platelet counts um, it can be a, a kind of a pre uh, a harbinger or a, a forewarning of of mpn
0: i did some um, reading on this recently and i think there's about 10 percent of splankment vein idiopathic splenic vein thrombosis are found to have jack 2 v617f mm. uh exon 12 vanishingly rare MPL vanishingly mm. rare um but CALR. One in 75 patients have CalR. So I think what we tend to do is test them for JAK2, and then if they're negative, test them for CalR, don't we?
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's in the, the latest BCSH yeah. uh, guidelines on erythrocytosis as, as well. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, don't forget your other other things. So you potentially PNH um, as, a, as a rare site thrombosis trigger, paroxysmal nocturnal, hemoglobinuria, and antiphospholipid syndrome, particularly if they've got the, the phenotype. What's the phenotype? Sorry, left, that, yeah, left that <laughs>
0: Um
1: So that's your to be patient with with lupus or known autoimmune disease, um, unexplained prolonged aPTT, liver reticularis, um, a thrombocytopenia. Okay. Okay. As well, so all the kind of pre-test probability factors.
0: The test for lupus, lupus anticoagulant, which is a functional assay, and then we've got mm. anti-cardiolipin, anti-beta two glycoprotein, haven't we?
1: Yes, the IgG. Uh, yeah. Versions of those, and obviously don't lupus anticoagulant if you're anticoagulated because that would give, often risk a false positive. Yes,
0: if you've got someone who's coming with, let's say they've got spontaneous portal vein thrombosis, and the jack 2 is negative, would you would you tell the, would you tell the team to send the antiphospholipid at the time anyway, even if the APTT is normal?
1: We yes, because I mean APTT is looking really for for dilute anticoagulant only, depending how how sensitive your lab's reagents are to, to it. Um, but you could still be double positive for the antibodies
0: yeah okay um brings us on beautifully to antiphospholipid doesn't it um so (laughs) um again i'm kind of keen to just cover the basics as well so antiphospholipid is what exactly
1: so i I think of it as an autoimmune thrombotic syndrome really so it's antibodies uh to a variety of poorly defined targets generally involving blood vessel phospholipids and other other targets leading Mm -hmm. to to thrombosis and venous and arterial circulations and obviously placental circulation leading to, to pregnancy complications okay. um the classic clinical and laboratory sorry clinical laboratory triad uh, of research criteria to make the diagnosis
0: okay um and that's to do with thrombosis and um the antibodies that were mentioned before and there's sort of cutoffs and various things and you have to repeat it at 12 weeks etc cetera, etc cetera, don't you
1: yes yeah because the antibodies can be transient
0: yeah um, good to know for exams but um yeah <laughs> hard hard to remember in practice but um no that's okay mm-hmm. um so do are a bit of a controversial subject in antiphospholipid aren't they um because mm-hmm. the traps trial which looked at triple positive patients and compared warfarin versus river saw excess of breakthroughs from both some warfarin i'm right i think
1: Yes, it was, so yeah, it was, it was a small trial, about 50, 55 patients yeah. each time, and it was actually stopped, stopped by the safety committee because the River Oxpan group had more arterial events, typically uh, ischemic strokes. Okay. Um, okay. And this was, this is patients who may have had a DBT previously, so they, they weren't prior prior arterial events. Mm. Um, and then there's, there's an ongoing study with the Pixpan astro aps and that, dose has changed so the pick has gone up to 5 bd from 2.5 and you need an mri brain to exclude small vessel ischemia before you're before you're allowed in okay okay big warning signs there
0: yeah small <laughs> tight inclusion criteria is always a warning mm-hmm. sign aren't they um and then the bsh reacted with guideline last year or guideline addendum and said anyone with antiphospholipid should not have a DOAC or at least we prefer warfarin in those patients. Um, agree or disagree?
1: So, so I, it was a very well-written guideline because it, it recognises the, the nuances The and leaves, leaves the door open to DOACs in certain situations. So we're obviously talking about triple positive, so patients who are lupus-antiragulant, antikydylipine, anti-BTT glycoprotein 1. In those, they're the groups where the signal is that DOACs are less effective than warfarin, particularly with arterial strokes. Um but anyway, if someone's had an arterial stroke, there's no license for DOAC anyway if they haven't got AF, so you shouldn't use DOACs in the first place. Yeah. Um but the the door's still open for your perhaps your single or double positive. Um especially if they're not loops anticoagulant positive, because that seems to be the most thrombotic of yeah. the three. Yeah. Um to consider a doac, certainly. And if they're on a doac already, um, yes, you could stop it. Do your do your loops anticoagulant and then put them back on waiting for the results perhaps and rediscuss.
0: Would you would you um, do that in clinic then? Would you if someone's not keen on warfarin, would you say to them, look, we need to test your lupus, you need to come off your anticoagulant, and we'll check it.
1: I I think if they yeah, I mean some patients are point blank refuse warfarin because this isn't yeah. their first clot, they've had warfarin before and they they've had a out for three months for this year and they don't want to go back. Yeah, fair um, enough. but yeah, I think certainly if there's any arterial events, I'd be really really keen just to to put put on paper that look you have significant risks of recurrent arterial strokes. Yeah. Um, if the time range is twenty percent, then I'd also argue that is there still a role for for warfarin? That's a different different situation. Do
0: you think a time in range of twenty percent indicates poor compliance, or is it something else?
1: Um, it, it unfortunately, often is poor compliance or poor understanding of of dietary dietary advice. Yeah. Um, there are theoretical complications with with so called lupus flares and and INR testing, particularly points of care.
0: Okay, tell me more. Not ahead not of this.
1: So it's it's through Roche, one of the American companies, who make the, the INR point-of-care machines. There's a big caveat about it during the lupus flare, the INR may be unreasonable, and we recommend paired oh. samples with um, with with venous INR checks as well. Okay. This is in people they with cause lupus. A lot of headaches.
0: Yeah. This is people with SLE.
1: Yes. Sorry. As well SLE. as there. Yeah, as a link. That's what, yeah. Link.
0: Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, so. There's a Venn
1: diagram where they both overlap and exist separately as well.
0: Fine. Fine um okay cool that's blankly vein and APLS what about cerebral venous sinus thrombosis so obviously in vogue because of it (laughs) um Mm. but cerebral venous sinus thrombosis can happen um secondary to inflammation meningitis tumor surgery but it can happen spontaneously as well can't it um yes yeah and as I understand not much data on any anticoagulant in this situation
1: no I mean so it's um, I mean, there's a Lancet summary, um, or I think it's the Lancet or New England Journal summary very recently that actually shows the only study with Warfarin has almost no benefit with Warfarin. Okay. Um, But we've always had it. We've always used it. It's that it's that reflex. Um, there's a more recent dabigatran versus Warfarin that shows comparable safety and efficacy. Okay. Um, but like you say, with it, we're, we're using doax now in these patients, and we'll get a lot more traction, a lot more evidence. Yeah.
0: Albeit not randomised against placebo. <laughs> no, no, real, real world is good. I mean, yeah. It's interesting to know. It'd be really interesting to see what the sort of natural history of CBST. Intuitively, you would want to anticoagulate someone, but clearly, medicine's full of situations where intuitively we've done things mm. that 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 are harmful or. Uh, at least, uh, I know at best have no effect, and you do wonder about these sorts of situations. It's, you know, to my mind, it probably still is ethical to do a do a randomised control because we generally generally don't know. But I, I'd be amazed if it happens.
1: Yeah, I think I mean the neuro. I mean the anatomy of the veins is slightly different. They don't have valves like the, the deep veins of the legs do, but there's yeah. still a sort of thrombus in area. Yeah. It's the venous congestion that's that's the problem. And it's yeah, yeah. I think it's struggle not to treat these patients.
0: So I'd be very hesitant about that. What, what do you use then? Do you use low molecular heparin, warfarin, or do you suggest a bigotron?
1: So, well, I, I, would, I would generally use any diac in this situation. I always, wouldn't always okay. jump to the yeah, Yes, maybe that's jumping ahead. I mean, the patients are variable. The patients with the big intracranial bleeds, you then end up with neurosurgery and, and treatment. We'd obviously use down to par initially.
0: When you um, say obviously. Many of them. <laughs> I mean, that's an know. interesting statement, isn't it? Is, it's, is it obvious or?
1: um well we we, i mean we're talking about drugs with no reversal agents and no um reliable levels to monitor um obviously we're talking about heparins here rather than Mm. um rather than doax but it's the same isn't it say the same same onset offset of action one's parenteral one's oral We can't measure their effect reliably we can't reverse them reliably Protein isn't a a full reversal yeah um so that that's why I, i i wouldn't be wouldn't be against DOAX in in situations. Again, discussing with the patients. I mean, unfortunately, we, we pick them up after discharge when they've been on warfarin on the wards for two or three weeks. Yeah. Um, but no, I think, call it indication creep, call it just catching up with with better
0: options. Doax will be increasingly used yeah. in this group. And I suppose we'll just get more real-world data, won't we, I suppose. Mm. I, like, I like your phrase of indication creep. I think, that's, <laughs> I think that'll catch on. <laughs> Um, it's dangerous
1: as well though if you're using doaks in the wrong situation as well which you've probably got a really difficult case for me i'm sure on that one uh
0: yeah okay um so <laughs> well not a case necessarily but um i will just end on um times you definitely wouldn't use a doac. um i mean i can think of a couple but i'm sure you can think of many more or yeah, maybe I mean, time maybe, maybe times that you've maybe times that you've seen people use a doac and you've cringed
1: um, so I can think of two patients with metallic heart valves who have been on, on dabigatran um, that we found out about later on. I mean, there's obviously very clear data from dabigatran. The fact study was stopped because of bleeds and, and thrombotic events being higher with dabigatran. Mm. And, but obviously it's still happening because the MR, MHRA recently released an alert last, last month about patients on DOAX and metallic valves. And that was just the the mad switch for everyone during COVID. Everyone was switched to a DOAC because they didn't want to come out for their INR checks. Um, we've got no data. There's no real data in pregnancy, um, safety or otherwise. So you need to, for your, your young females on a doax always remember um, pregnancy, pills and periods are kind of three things to, to remember in your counselling. Um, arterial antiphospholipid syndrome is an absolute, absolute no for me for DOACs. Mm-hmm. As well. Anyone who's previously been on Warfarin with a target INR of, of three point five, the DOACs have not been studied in that area. Um, so if they generally need that higher target, then then the DOAC is 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 not comparable.
0: Okay. Al- uh, albeit with with limited evidence for INR of three point five as well for breakthrough thrombosis. Is that right?
1: Yeah. It, again it's that intuitive. Mm. We need to do something a bit stronger. It's yeah, it's a bit like antiplatelets, don't work. Let's add warfarin even though there's no like an embolic stroke of uncertain source. We'll just add yeah. it. And again, I wouldn't use a doac there at the moment. Yeah, and um, there's evidence. There's two, two or three doac trials where doacs are more harmful than aspirin with no better recurrent stroke prevention.
0: Okay, uh, it, are there any situations where you would switch someone between doacs, not because of intolerance, but perhaps failure or any other reason? So
1: from a, from one doac to another,
0: there.
1: Mm, mm. um, so certainly those on a dose adjustment boundary. Um, okay might be just more of a practical or safety reason so if you're if your creatinine clearance is around 50 and there one dose of Friza might change away from dropping below it you're potentially looking at a 50 percent switch in edoxaban um so if you move to some, something like a pixaban you've got more more of a buffer okay the changes there
0: you you triggered my brain when you said creatinine clearance because so mm-hmm. many people use the egfr and this is an important distinction isn't it you need to use calculated creatinine yes. clearance to, to make these decisions um yeah my little old lady who was 85 and 27 kilos her egfr was 84 and a calculated creatinine clearance was 24 so there's there's, hmm. there's quite a difference there and that's what all the licensing is about um I'll, yes. I'll put you on the spot then what are the give me the top three things that go wrong with doax that people but people get wrong and 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 can easily be remedied with a bit of knowledge
1: so certainly creatinine clearance and egfr that's a big mm-hmm. problem um the natural instinct to do no harm and use a lower dose than is indicated by the renal function so we see a pic span 2.5 and it should be five because they have had minor bleeding or even a major bleeding in the past
0: and it's counterintuitive um, isn't it because it's it's putting mm. them at risk of a risk of bleeding with theoretically that that stroke reduction risk is the, the stroke reduction benefit isn't there mm.
1: yeah there's there's i think there's some some data from a few years ago that it, it, it will quintuple the stroke risk with a Pixpan without really reducing bleeding if you if you use a lower dose than the, okay. than the renal function okay. dictates. that's interesting. Um, and then, and I guess, less common now, but previously it was unnecessary co prescription of antiplatelets um, continued longer than necessary or, or not reviewed regularly. That's another, because that will double your risk of bleeding with any antithrombotic.
0: I always think it's good if we're not sure, just check the cardiologist because the, these indications are changing all the time, aren't they? And um, mm-hmm. often the, the dual antiplatelets and things, are all cardiology or, or vascular, um, and it confuses the hell out of me with all, <laughs> all the new indications and, and different stents and uh, and whatnot. Which is, yes. you know, with cardiology and hematology are sister specialties in many ways, um, but um, mm. we have to try and have to try and communicate between ourselves to to try and make sure these. Yeah, no, are safe. yeah, very important to pick up the phone and speak to you to
1: your cardiologist or the patient's cardiologist because my knowledge of the anatomy of the vessels and if if they've had a stent but their the reserve of other vessels is limited and the aspirin may still be needed and it's a, a balanced decision
0: fantastic right i've probably exhausted you we've both got small children we both get very limited <laughs> sleep and we both survive on coffee um <laughs> um so we better we better leave it there we're going to meet again and talk about uh DOAC reversal agents which is a really interesting area Um, it has some serious implications and some serious cost implications as well so it's important to talk about and then I'm sure over the next uh, year or two we'll have plenty more to talk about as we both learn and there's more indications for Dirk's coming out, so um, I th- I'm sure David's going to be a friend of this podcast if it ever gains any traction and gains more than you know 15 listeners. So, <laughs> <Of course. laughs> I'm sure it will, Richard. I'm sure it will. <laughs> um, I'm going to put some of the um, I'm going to put some of the trials that we've mentioned and, and resources in the show notes, so you guys can click on them. Um, and if uh, you ever want to ask me or David anything, just send me a message on Twitter, and I will pass it on. Lovely. All right. Take care. Thanks well what an absolute joy to have David on the podcast I hope you've learned as much as I have and I'm going to listen to that again uh, time and time again just to remind myself of what to do in certain situations I'm going to put the useful links in the show notes including a link to an anti-calculation forum document which is a summary of use of doax in bariatric surgery the link to spark tool which trust me is a brilliant resource a link to the traps trial which was rivaroxaban versus warfarin for triple positive apls the ISTH update in the last couple of months on the use of doax in patients with high body weight and the trial of dabigatran versus warfarin for cvst Stay tuned for more exciting podcasts in the coming weeks. I'm going to have David on again talking about anticoagulation reversal and a three-way discussion between um, two amazing people, Tom and Alex, who respectively run uh, Hemebase and Buku Hematology, which are two awesome educational websites and apps respectively. Um, We'll be recording that shortly and it will be available in the next week or so. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be treated as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of the content, but if you do notice any errors, feel free to send me some constructive criticism on Twitter. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is recorded and produced by Richard Booker and music is by Scott Holmes.